welcome to the Peanut Podcast, where we explore hot topics and future trends impacting the peanut industry, including agriculture, sustainability, nutrition, allergies, culture, consumers, and more. I'm Lauren Highfield-Williams. And I'm Lindsay Stevens. For our first episode, we're going to be doing a two-parter on peanut allergies. So today we'll be talking about the early dark days of peanut allergies, as well as diagnosing peanut allergies and NPV's early commitment to research. Then, in our next episode, we'll be doing a deeper dive into peanut allergy treatment and the amazing research that led to the early introduction guidelines we have today. Our journey begins in the late 1990s. Back in the day when all the kids were playing on Game Boys, you were probably watching Friends in prime time, and this internet thing was, you know, just starting to take off. So at the same time, the rate of food allergy diagnoses was skyrocketing, and no one knew exactly why. But pediatricians and new parents especially were desperate for action to change the trajectory. So in the year 2000, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued new recommendations based on the best expert opinion at the time. Delay the introduction of peanut until three years of age. Additionally, for adults and children diagnosed with a peanut allergy already, the only treatment was for reactions, and the advice given to prevent one was to completely avoid eating peanuts. So also during this time, the peanut industry was becoming increasingly dissatisfied with the peanut quota system, and there were calls to even eliminate it. This was eventually done in the 2002 Farm Bill. Simultaneously, there was a move in the peanut world to establish a national checkoff program, hence the creation of the National Peanut Board in 2000. So the early board members knew that peanut allergies were not going to be a passing fad and decided to tackle the problem head on. One of those board members at the forefront of this challenge was the inaugural Virginia board member, Dee Dee Dorden. Nobody expected us to be a bank and funnel the money to other organizations. And well, we sure broke that mold. And and then when we decided we were going to go be bold and do things on our own, because we wanted to be our own entity, our own voice, and make our own decisions. So people knew right from the very beginning that we weren't, we weren't going to be put in a box like they wanted us to be, that we were going to be different and we were going to do things on our own and we were going to do it our way. The early board members were hit hard with questions from the public about peanut allergies. And Dee Dee even remembers a specific one she'd been asked on a press tour with the American Peanut Council in Canada. In an interview, somebody asked me, how does it feel to grow a crop that could kill somebody? You know, my response was, you know, we're, we're trying to do something. And then I think that made me more impassioned that we really had to get behind this allergy thing. And we did as a board. And that was a tough question. And, you know, we had a lot of, a lot of questions like that early on. The questions kept coming and the board didn't have all the answers. As a matter of fact, questions about peanut allergies became infamous within the peanut growing community. Our current 2021 MPV chairman, Andy Bell, remembers this time. Um, I've said many times that, uh, Sometimes when you mention someone in the media or whatever would mention peanut allergy, it would just strike fear in most of the members. They didn't want to talk about it, mainly because we didn't have an answer. The early days were full of slow change, and when Dee Dee Darden left the board at the end of 2005, she hadn't fully seen all of her hard work pay off. But by the time 2008 rolled around, the tides were starting to turn. The American Academy of Pediatrics backed away from their recommendations to withhold the introduction of peanuts to children until they were between ages one and three. 
and stated that the introduction of allergenic foods should not be delayed as a means to prevent food allergies. MPB also upped our approach and began building relationships with food allergy advocates, engaging with schools in response to growing food bans, and monitoring and responding to media coverage regarding food allergies. Didi's mission left a lasting impact on MPB, one that our current CEO, Bob Parker, would continue to champion when he came to the board in 2012. And even though the scientific community were starting to discover more information about peanut allergies, the public still saw peanuts as public enemy number one. Here's Bob on when he first joined the board. I also saw early on that we had some work to do. There was still a lot of confusion and misperceptions about peanut allergy. And as I got out, I decided to hit the ground running and to try to meet people in the allergy community and the medical community doing work in peanut allergy. And I found that there was a lot of animosity, a lot of mistrust. I remember one of the first meetings I went to was a meeting of an organization, a large national food allergy organization. And during one of the breaks, I was talking to a couple of moms of peanut allergy sufferers. And one of them asked me sincerely, well, why can't peanut farmers grow something else? And I explained how important peanuts are to our families that depend on peanuts as an income in a diversified farming operation. But it it really hit me and I realized we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of explaining to do and a lot of things to overcome. So the journey to address the public concern began and us at the National Peanut Board got to work. It started with consumer research so we could figure out what we were up against when it came to public perception. As we did consumer research, we realized that the perception of peanut allergy was much higher than in reality. The actual prevalence of peanut allergy in the population is 1% to 2%. In small children, it's probably closer to 2%, and it may actually still be increasing. But what we found through research is that consumers believe that approximately 25% of the U.S. population was allergic to peanut. And so we knew we had to work in that area to at least try to calm things down a little bit. After finding that the public perception of peanut allergies was actually much higher than their rate in reality, we started a media monitoring program where we could check in on mentions of peanut allergies and correct any factual inaccuracies. We decided that we would set up in 2013 a really robust media monitoring program where we scour print media, online media, uh, television, radio, for anything that has to do with peanut allergy. And if there's misinformation or, for example, a school ban being proposed, then we could reach out quickly. We could reach out to journalists to correct them. I always say we've, we've rarely ever gotten any retractions from any anything that's reported wrong by the media, but usually we, uh, by politely contacting the journalist and educating them on the subject, 
we don't see repeats and misinformation. The commitment to peanut allergies for Bob, though, does not just stop once he's home from work. While the issue has been something NPB has worked at since its inception, it hit a bit closer to home in 2014. It is a personal issue for me. Uh, It's a a personal issue for me for two reasons, because I work for the peanut industry. I work for peanut farmers. And anything that puts a black mark by their names is something that they take very seriously. Our farmers take great pride in producing a safe, wholesome, highly nutritious, sustainable product. And they don't want any one person, they don't want anyone to be harmed by the food they produce. So that's the first reason why it's so personal to me. The second reason is I had my first grandchild born in 2014. I had been on board with the peanut board for over a year when he was born. And later in 2014, toward the end of 2014, he was diagnosed with a peanut allergy and allergy to some other nuts. At the time, I thought, how could the president and CEO of the National Peanut Board's grandson be diagnosed with a peanut allergy? I mean, of of all the horrible things to happen. And it is a horrible thing to happen to any family. But I, um, I realized that that's the hand that was dealt to my daughter and her husband and to him and that we would overcome this. They would overcome this and I would provide every, everything I could to them. And so I've been through the journey. And so until that point, I had, I had heard so many times and I still heard from some people after that, you don't know what it's like to have a child with a peanut allergy. And I, I was able to reply, yes, I do know what it's like. I do know what your journey is and I understand what you're going through and I understand the fear. I'm so proud of my daughter and her husband because they didn't let his nut allergies and peanut allergy take control of their lives. We have a saying at NPB that's inspired by a quote that's often attributed to Teddy Roosevelt. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think Bob's personal connection to peanut allergy, coupled with NPB's long-term commitment to the cause, has really shown how much we care. NPB consultant and registered dietitian Sherry Coleman Collins says that early investment in peanut allergy was crucial to getting us to where we are today. This is one of the things that we can be the most proud of. You know, America's peanut farmers through the National Peanut Board have committed more than $35 million toward food allergy research, outreach, and education. And it is showing itself to be a good investment. So I think that's, you know, that's, it shows that peanut farmers are sort of putting their money where their mouth is, right? We talk a lot about food allergies and wanting to be part of the solution for peanut allergies. And I think that because of the investments that we've made now, we're seeing some very positive things come. And while we've made great strides correcting peanut allergy misconceptions and general public perception, there are still areas that need our focus. So in episode two, we'll get more into the prevention and treatment of peanut allergies. But for now, let's talk about food allergy diagnosis. 
a topic within the field that still needs further research. Here's Sherry on how food allergies are diagnosed. Diagnosing a food allergy at this point is a little bit of art, a little bit of science. You know, it's very much based on um, flawed testing. Unfortunately, the blood and skin tests that we currently use for diagnosing food allergies have a lot of false positives. They both yield a lot of false positives. So they're relying very much, physicians and people who are diagnosing food allergies are relying very much on uh, parents and children or adults to give a good history on when they have a reaction, what the reaction looks like, what they ate, how much of it they ate. And sometimes that can be a real challenge. Sometimes the histories are not as complete as they should be, or they could be, or people don't remember, right? When you have an emergency situation, you may not remember all the details necessary. And so physicians are, are sort of left to use these blood and skin tests that have these high rates of false positives. The good news is that a lot of research is being done and looking at better diagnostics. What are some other markers that can be used besides looking at IgE, which is what these tests look at, but besides looking at skin whelps, what can we look at within the body to help give a better diagnosis? And we have some testing that's, um, that's showing some real promise, the BAT test, which is a basophil activation test that's, um, that, that seems to be more accurate than the current IgE blood test. Um, there are some other tests out there that are currently being researched. I think this is an area where there needs to be um, significant innovation, and it's happening, but it's going to take some time. Time is a common challenge, but with the right effort and people backing it, progress is made. One area that I want to continue our efforts in, and we will continue our efforts, is in food allergy research. We budget a significant amount of money each year for that area. And one shortcoming we have is diagnosis. We don't have a, a lab test that is certain of predicting a, a food allergy. We have skin tests, we have blood tests, but they tend to overdiagnose, which is better than underdiagnosing. But we have a lot of people walking around with uh, who are not allergic to peanuts who think they are. And we need a good laboratory test for accurately predicting whether someone has a peanut allergy or not. And there's some really interesting research going on in that area right now at a couple of places. We're hoping that some accurate diagnostic tools will emerge. There's also a lot of misuse out there of diagnostic tools that are in the hands of people other than allergists that are over-diagnosing people. For example, you can order a food allergy diagnostic test online. You can in some cases, go to a chiropractor or a nutritionist or dietitian and get a food allergy test. And the food allergy tests we have today are such that someone needs a complete medical history. It really needs to be an allergist. And we, we need those tests to not be used improperly. One problem we have out there is access to allergists. Beyond that, even allergists that have a strong understanding of food allergy. We're working with one major research institution on online consultation by family practitioners, pediatricians with allergists who can 
guide them on what steps they need to take next, whether they need to get in the line to see an allergist or if they don't need to get in line to see an allergist. Currently, the most accurate way to test for food allergies is the oral food challenge, which is a medical procedure in which a patient is fed gradually increasing amounts of the suspected allergy causing food over a period of time. And this is all while under the supervision of a board certified allergist and trained medical staff, of course. The oral food challenge is the gold standard. It really is. And this is where under supervision, right, uh, with a physician in the physician's office, an individual who thinks they have a food allergy, who may have had a food allergy reaction, actually eats the food that they're allergic to. And they start in very small doses and then increasing doses until they either successfully eat a full dose or they have a reaction. And the oral food challenge is um, very, very telling, right? It, it gives us a lot of information. It's a great tool. It can be really good even if an individual doesn't pass because then they know what a reaction actually looks like and they know for sure that they have a food allergy. But it can be a little scary, right, for people who have food allergies and for, for parents of children with food allergies, it can be scary. Sometimes physicians are very hesitant to do it. It's poorly reimbursed, so they may not want to do it because it costs a lot of money and resources. And it can be scary even for a physician to think about inducing anaphylaxis in their office. So the oral food challenge is the gold standard, and there's some very good things about doing it, but it isn't without risk. And these other diagnostic tests that people are um, looking at through research right now will be, will be less risk. Bob has seen the dangers of the necessary test firsthand with his grandson. The ultimate diagnosis for food allergy is an oral challenge which a lot of people don't want to go through because it is. I've seen my grandson go through a, an oral challenge and it's scary when they, when they start swelling and, and um, have a rash form. It's very scary, but if they're in the right medical environment with people who know how to handle it, it's, it's, it's a safe thing, but that's the ultimate test. That's the gold standard for, food allergy testing right now, and I think we would like to see a, a really good diagnostic method that would be accurate in predicting not whether someone has elevated levels in their blood that show a sensitivity to a food who might not react to that food. We need a test that would actually show that, yes, they would react yes, they have an, a, a true allergy. While there's still more to learn about peanut allergies, NPB is committed to the challenge. I would just say progress comes slow when dealing with allergy issues and guidelines. I mean, these, these studies and trials take time. We have to be patient. We have to fund, fund all these, these studies and trials or help fund, fund them or, or they won't get done. And, uh, like I said, a lot of progress has been made, but, but also educating doctors, educating nurses, parents. Uh, it, it takes money and it takes time and, and peanut farmers need to be patient. This is a huge issue. We're, we're, we're not at the end of the road, but, but we're way down the road from where we started. And, and we just need to be patient and help keep funding all of these studies and trials and any anything that will help maybe there's a cure out there somewhere I, I don't know but all we have right now is a treatment and early introduction you know studies 
We'll talk more about the treatment and early introduction that Andy mentions in our next episode. So Lauren, you've been a part of MPV's peanut allergy journey for over 12 years now. Did any part of the story surprise you? Yeah, that's a good question. Because I've been here so long, um, there wasn't anything that surprised me, but I, I think what stuck with me the most um, was what Andy said about how in the past, peanut farmers have been really afraid when people have asked them um, about peanut allergy or when it's come time for them to talk about it. Um, but then because of all the investments that the National Peanut Board has made, and also I feel like um, the job that we've done as communicators there's more to talk about um, that's positive related to peanut allergies. And also those growers feel empowered, like they have the tools to be able to, to tell their story and be proud of um, the investment that they've made in peanut allergy. So that was something that I was, my little communicator's heart just soared at that comment. <laughs> <laughs> but Lindsay, you're kind of in the opposite boat, being um, relatively new to the team, just coming up on almost a year with NPB now. Um, did anything surprise or jump out at you? Yeah, I don't know if surprise is like the right word because I was in elementary school when the peanut bands were probably at their peak. Um, and I remember having a friend who was allergic to peanuts and him having to sit at the peanut allergy table. And of course, at the time, I thought it was cool how he was able to sit at what I thought was like a VIP lunch table. And I didn't really connect the dots. But I also remember around Halloween, parents were really careful about what candy they sent us to school with um, because of the peanut allergies. So I thought it was really interesting to kind of like learn the reasoning behind such strict guidelines that I grew up with, at least in elementary school and in middle school. Yeah, I think that's that's great to hear. Um, there's a lot of folks out there like you outside the industry who have really heard about um, peanut allergies tangentially or like, yeah, somebody at my school uh, has had them, but they might not know much about it. So I'm glad that you um, enjoyed diving in and um, learning more. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so as Lauren was saying, um, in our next episode, which is already out, we'll be talking about the current peanut allergy guidelines. But for now, we're going to leave you with a little joke. So Lauren, are you ready? I think so. Yeah. Okay, here it is. Where do peanut drivers go to fill their tanks? Where do they? The Shell Station. Yes, the Shell Station. <laughs> These are like peanut dad jokes, I think. I think that category is a lot more accurate. Peanut Dad, peanut dad jokes. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for the first episode of the Peanut Podcast. Our second episode is already out, so make sure that you click on over to listen to it. And don't forget to subscribe to the Peanut Podcast to stay updated on our episodes. Thanks for tuning in. 